the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Brigadier General Gary Thompson, CD, former Deputy Commander of Land Force Central Area, Honorary Lieutenant Colonel of the Grand Simcoe Foresters. I served four commanders, and General Vernon was relieved when I suddenly became acting commander of 14,000 soldiers right. for four months, plus having my full-time civilian job and trying not to let them know I was doing this <laughs> other thing as much as I was. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. A couple of exciting things to talk about. One of them was I was invited in the last couple of weeks to the United Service Institute Peterborough branch to speak to a group of veterans about the podcast. I had a great night. They were a great group of people. I got to meet some potential listeners and hopefully some potential guests as well. And that was really what I was looking to do, make some connections both on the guest side and on the listener side, and hopefully find some interesting people for me to interview. So thanks to the good people at the United Service Institute of Peterborough. Another thing that's happened, I don't know if I mentioned previously the YouTube video I produced. However, I have produced my second YouTube video for the show. Once again, hopefully attracting more listeners to the show and getting a little bit more interest. So please have a look at both of my YouTube videos and I hope you enjoy them. Now, a couple of people chose to provide me with some feedback about the show. First of all, Sean Hoopy says, Hi Mike, congratulations on your fantastic podcast. What a great initiative. I'm a recent subscriber and I'm slowly catching up on older posts. So hopefully you'll enjoy the improvement in quality from my early episodes, but anyhow. I find myself constantly reminded of the quality of soldier citizens who we have in Canada, regular and reserved, serving and retired. Keep them coming, brother. Well, Sean, I hope that you appreciate the shows and I hope that you're spreading the word. So keep your pals informed and let them know that the show is continuing on. I had another bit of feedback from Steve Gikadis who says, just discovered this podcast on Thursday, so that would be just a few days before October 31st, and have already listened to six episodes. I'm currently in the process of rejoining the Primary Reserve with the Windsor Regiment Royal Canadian Armoured Corps, having previously belonged to the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry. I'm sure I will get some helpful tips and hear some more amazing stories from some of our country's greatest heroes. Keep up the good work. While Steve, the Windsor Regiment is a great unit and they serve out of the Windsor Armoury, which is a fantastic facility. I had an opportunity to visit that facility in May 2013 and I had a personally guided tour by the RSM of the Essex and Kent Scottish. So you'll really enjoy that armory. It's a nice facility. And hopefully one day the rifle range there gets approved for use by service rifles. If you're interested in providing some feedback for the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. You can go on my website, CanadianMilitaryHistoryPodcast.ca, and just click on the guestbook link. If I don't approve your link right away, I will get to it. So I'm not very vigilant on that part, but I do try to keep up as quickly as I can. You can also send me an email at MikeLacroixCMHP at gmail.com and there's always the Facebook site. As I said before, I'm using the Facebook site primarily and then sharing the posts from the Facebook site rather than posting and reposting amongst the individual pages that the person or the guest had been connected to. I think it's a little bit more efficient to do it that way 
and hopefully people still get the message that a new episode has been produced. Today's guest is Honorary Lieutenant Colonel Brigadier General Gary Thompson. Now Gary and I first met at the men's Christmas dinner of the Grand Simcoe Foresters, which we'll get to in the episode as regular listeners know. However, we had a chance to speak during an event at the Royal Canadian Military Institute in Toronto. And at that event, I learned that he was another piece of the story that's informally being told on the podcast, and that's the story of the disbandment of the Airborne Regiment. It's not by design that some of the episodes are steered that way. It's more that some of the guests have experience in that episode in Canadian military history, and they feel the need to speak about it. So what is informally happening is we're getting a better picture of that one particular event. As we get more guests and more episodes produced, maybe there's some other episodes in Canadian military history that will start to get more light shed on them. This episode also speaks about the genocide in Rwanda, very briefly though, but that's another aspect of Canadian military history that I would like some guests to shed some light on. So that's another aspect that we can dig into if we get the guests to speak on those topics. So General Thompson grew up in Thunder Bay in King Carden, Ontario. He immigrated from Scotland as a young lad and his father was a wartime officer in the British Army and he also served as a police officer. Now General Thompson is somebody who I really haven't had a chance to get to know well. However, since we are both wearing the same cap badge, I'm sure that we're going to have a greater opportunity to get to know each other in the coming months, especially as we gear up towards the 150th anniversary of the Grand Simcoe Foresters, the Presentation of Colors, which is scheduled for the May 2-4 weekend in 2016. That will be held in Owen Sound, Ontario. Hopefully you come to check it out. And he's also working on an initiative to mark the 100th anniversary of the establishment of Canadian Forces Base Boarding. Here's my interview with Brigadier General Gary Thompson. Brigadier General Thompson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Now, sir, you and I first met at the annual Christmas dinner of the Great and Simcoe Foresters in your role as the Honorary Lieutenant Colonel in Owen Sound last year. Yes. So 2014. That's right. Yeah. I'm currently the Honorary Lieutenant Colonel of the Gray and Simcoe Foresters and Honorary Colonel Designate. We'll see how that works out <laughs> with Army paperwork and all of the rest of it. Next year's the 150th anniversary for that. Absolutely. So it's going to be a big deal for all of us, including you. Yes. <laughs> I'm not career-wise a forester, but my family is from Simcoe County. So in some ways, there's a kind of a happy tie back. But That's right. I started in military, actually in cadets in 1955, which was only 10 years after the end of the Second World War, and every high school had an Army Cadet Corps. And I just, the first time I put on the uniform, I knew exactly that this is what I wanted to be and never really had thought about it before that because I hadn't been anywhere near a cadet corps. Right. So is that why you chose to join the Canadian Armed Forces, because of your experience in the cadets? Very largely. It's in my blood. My father was an infantry officer in the British Army during the war. He was captured at Anzio Beachhead in Italy, a prisoner of war for 16 months. I remember him coming home. But when we got to Canada, he was by a profession, a policeman. We were in the OPP up in Northern Detachment, so there weren't cadet corps around. But somewhere in me, putting on that uniform just that one time obviously triggered what was there. So I've in some ways never taken it off. (laughs) That's right. 
Now, before we move on and continue with why you chose to join the Canadian Armed Forces, I do need to ask you a very quick question. I introduced you at the rank of Brigadier General, which was the rank you held when you served, but currently you're a Lieutenant Colonel. Can you just explain that to the listeners, how you can currently be a Lieutenant Colonel when previously you held a higher rank? Yes, yeah. It's kind of a uniquely Canadian system. It goes back into the 1800s. So it's an honorary lieutenant colonel, which is not a rank, it's an appointment. Right. Whereas the rank of brigadier general was a substantive rank, and I will always be that, brackets retired, brackets. That's but right. The honorary lieutenant colonel or the honorary colonel of a unit is an appointment from the minister. I see. I think that explains it quite well. Now, which unit did you join when you chose to join the Canadian Armed Forces? Well, I actually joined ROTP out of high school, and having gone through the selection process and so on, I was sent to a civilian university, which happened to be what became Waterloo Lutheran, which became Wilfrid Laurier, but was Waterloo College at the time. I was ROTP, the same as the officer cadets reporting to Royal Military College and Royal Road. So we combined in the summertime for phase training. Right. So you didn't actually sign up to a specific regiment when you joined. You just joined the Canadian Forces basically overall. No, I was fadged Royal Canadian Infantry Corps. There we go. And the School of Infantry existed in Borden at that time. So we all wore Infantry Corps, and you didn't get assigned to a regiment in that case until you had been commissioned. Right. And what year was that when you joined, sir? 1958. September 1958, I went into ROTP, and I was in for two years. Then I became officer cadet, retired <laughs> through some unfortunate circumstances, and I joined the reserve four years later almost in 1963 because I actually hadn't run across much of the reserve or I would have joined it probably right away. Right. But anyway, I found my way to the Royal Regiment of Canada in September of 1963 and was taken on as a second lieutenant. What was the world like when you joined, sir? It was very different than now. The militia was much bigger, but of course I was sort of steeped in being a regular force officer cadet and so on, and I had to do a bit of a gear shift, but the reserve was quite a bit bigger than it is now. The Royals had had their 100th anniversary the year before I joined, and they've had 600 trooping the color, and the units, are, including them, are a lot smaller now. Right. At that particular point, it was always a little disappointing for everybody in it. The government had put the reserves into national survival training, and the threat of an atomic attack and so on was always there, and so all of the training almost was pointed towards a national survival. Of course, we would have all been taken out with the verse bomb, so it was all, <laughs> always a bit... Uh, a bit tongue-in-cheek with that. But besides that, it was an infantry unit and a very, very glorious history unit, and I went right through it and commanded it from 1976 to 1979. Right. What were you like when you joined, sir? Oh, I was uh, sort of a tall, thin, gangly guy, <laughs> six four, and I wish I weighed now what I had weighed then. That would <laughs> would have been all right. But the training that I'd actually done in the School of Infantry and so on as an officer cadet there stood me in very good stead because I knew what I was doing the moment I walked through the door versus the other folks who were coming straight in off the street. I had a civilian career, as we all did. I worked 
in the bank at that point, hated it, <laughs> and then went over to the insurance world. But probably through my entire young adult life, the military kept me kind of sane and going back into my civilian job every day, which is where I paid the rent and raised the money for life and so on, because the militia got paid very, very little. And what we did get paid got taken away by the regiment <laughs> That's to run events and fairs and so on. So but just being in the reserve satisfied a need in me to not necessarily be in a uniform, but certainly to be serving. Right. Sir, what is your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces or your greatest achievement? My greatest achievement? Probably two or three. The last year that I commanded the Royal Regiment in March 1979 of that particular year, Prince Charles came to Canada for the very first time in his life. And he was the colonel-in-chief of, of the royals, his first visit to the unit. So we put on, um, it had to be indoors, but we put on quite a spectacular day and a spectacular full-dress scarlet parade for him, plus a mess dinner, plus a big reception with all the veterans of the unit and so on. That took three or four months of hard work just to get the troops ready for it. Absolutely. To make it all happen. It was a big relief to see that airplane door close and, and, uh, <laughs> and him go away just simply because it had been the peak of all that preparation and it went off fine. So that would be one. I was brigade commander. It was a district commander in those days from That's 86 right. to 88. Toronto Militia District equates to what is now 32 Canadian Brigade Group. Yes, sir. Whether I was average or better than average or less, I guess, doesn't matter very much now. We got through it. But the military, like all organizations, keeps playing with structure and keeps changing things whether they really need to be changed or not. <laughs> when my time came up that I was going to be promoted Brigadier General Deputy Commander of Land Force Central Area, now for division, the Army was experimenting with what they called one army and the idea that reservists and regulars were to be completely integrated and equal and all those things. So I fell into a little five-year gap in which, as deputy commander of LFCA, and I got promoted when Lou McKenzie, by the way, went to Bosnia. He'd had the job before me, and he was a regular right. and one of the best-known ones we've ever had. So I stepped into that shoe, but I was also responsible as deputy commander for all the regular force in Ontario as well, all of the things that are deputy logistics and so on. So in addition to having a full-time civilian job as an executive, I had all of this going on. And about the end of my time, the Army changed again and I think went back to something a little more sensible, more tailored to reserve time capabilities, let's just put it that way. Right. Also, the history had been that the deputy commander of what had been Central Militia Area and then became Land Force Central Area with the regular force involved had always focused on the militia part of things and I couldn't do that. My duty was to be responsible for both sides of the house, and my reserve colleagues, who I had known all my serving life, didn't understand what the role was and thought that I was a sellout from that point of view because <laughs> I had to defend all kinds of things that needed defending, but it fell to me to do that. So it was a time of considerable misunderstanding and a little bit of tension. And then, as we mentioned, the unhappy event of I served four commanders, and General Vernon was relieved, and I suddenly became acting commander of 14,000 soldiers right. for four months, plus having my full-time civilian job and trying not to let them know that I was doing this other <laughs> thing as much as I was. 
So the four months probably was running 100-hour weeks and probably surviving that four months until a new two-star came in would probably be one of them. Right. And you had quite an eventful task to perform as the commander of Land Force Central Area. Right. It's 22, 23 years ago now, but the area as it was then, the Airborne had been, well, there were nine regular battalions and the Airborne Regiment, and they were really stretched very thinly. We were in a situation, and I really was only beginning to understand what happened at an area headquarters. Even though I was the deputy commander of it, a good part of all of this was new to me. It just had never been part of any of my staff experience or otherwise. But the Airborne had been supposed to go to supervise an election in West Africa and was a UN mission. They were all packed up, ready to go, and things went wrong at the UN level. They, In the end, they never went, but they were still packed and sitting on their bunks. Right. A need came up to go to Somalia, and all that the Army had available was, in fact, the Airborne Regiment. So they were tasked for Somalia. The fact was that there was trouble within the unit from a fairly small group, but they were real disruptors. They'd burned an officer's car in the middle of the parade square. They, I won't go into all of the detail, but they were a bad little group. And the commanding officer of the Airborne at that time said, this unit is not ready to deploy. And because they were the only ones to go, the way sometimes things like this happen, he was hustled out of the way and a new CO was brought in. They went to Somalia, and in fact, it went wrong because that problem that I mentioned before hadn't been straightened out. Right. When they got back and were sort of settled back in, and General Vernon had been airborne, and he wore a maroon beret, and he was kind of a hard-nosed guy. I, I quite liked him, but he was bringing in a very high standard of uh, infantry training, which was pretty tough for full-time reservists to meet, but it became the culture once Afghanistan came along, so he was maybe slightly ahead of his time. But a couple of things happened. The number one commando of the Airborne had been off training with the French Foreign Legion somewhere and had picked up some rather disgusting little little habits of initiation, and the details don't matter. But anyway, some video of that was made public, and it was a little bit shocking. And there had been another incident as well to do with Airborne initiation and training. And so I really have to say that I wasn't close enough to what was happening above us to really totally understand it, but I think Brian Vernon got tagged as the sacrificial lamb. He hadn't done anything, in my mind, to justify what happened. He spoke to me a little bit as was all happening, and he had gotten a call from an Air Force two-star at National Defense Headquarters, but said, you're going down. And in fact, that's what happened. So I thought his being relieved was extremely unfair. That led to my four months of running about as hard as I could. Then the actual disbanding of the Airborne Regiment, which in my mind was completely unnecessary, All that was necessary was to sort out that little problem, which would have taken some real hard-nosed leadership and the political and military will to do it, and it could have been done, because this country needs an airborne regiment, even if there was such a thing as a major plane crash up north, there's no other way to get to the people than drop them in. Right. And so the disbandment weekend, and I'm the poor guy who had to sign the disbandment papers as the acting area commander, was a most 
sad occasion. That's right. It was just like watching the Titanic sink, knowing, and everybody there knew it was the wrong thing to do and the wrong solution, but it was a political solution that was half-baked and not thought through at all. The Army still should have that unit and don't. So I think that probably covers my part of it. That's right. Well, the whole area was in complete shock that it's not really Canadian tradition that folks get relieved the way that that happened. It took a little while to get everybody back on track. Absolutely. Sir, who is your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered? I would say, well, there are several. Lou McKenzie, for sure. He was maybe a year older than me. He was a phase ahead of me at the School of Infantry, and he probably had the career exactly that I thought I was going to have when I was an officer (laughs) cadet. So it was a good experience to be his deputy commander, and I had to stand in for him a fair amount on this side while he was off doing the thing when he got to be very well known. I joined at a time when a lot of the World War II folks were still serving, and a number of those who are well-known in Canadian history were the rank of full colonel and so on when I was an officer cadet, a lieutenant and so on, and so there would be several in that category. Someone who I always find is a very great inspiration from the Royal Regiment of Canada is General Reg Lewis. He's quite an icon in the regiment as well. Reg Lewis? Yes. Yeah, and uh, we were good acquaintances. I worked for him at at the headquarters uh, on a couple of different occasions. He, by core, was Ordnance Corps and came up through the service battalion network, but we made him honorary colonel of the Royal Regiment of Canada, which he held for a dozen years. So he certainly was a very skilled guy. (laughs) Along the way, I met, I'm trying to remember some of the names, and I'll pick them up afterwards. Sir, we've come to the final question. What was the greatest challenge you had to overcome during your service? I think there's a a couple of different levels. By the way, I should mention before we go there that one of the most rewarding things that I got to do was to go to Rwanda. I was in Rwanda about three months after the massacre. Wow. So everything was still pretty raw and very, very recent there. So that was stepping right into modern genocide. And I got to tour a good part of the country and be there and see that. Romeo Dallaire had just been posted back out a couple of weeks before I got there, but I served as the Area Commander Ontario when he was Commander Quebec. And then after that, I got to pretty well every single Canadian location in both Croatia and Bosnia when I was able to go over and do a sweep through all of that. That kind of filled a little hole because in my whole career, I had not actually managed to get out of Canada other than to the United States. So Croatia, Bosnia, and Rwanda are sort of big things in my memory. Right. What was your role that you had to be able to go to those places? Land Force Central Area was the force generator for all of the troops that were doing that. And so we were beginning in a very serious way to be feeding reservists into the regular units to staff them up to their full establishment to go for it, plus getting those full units, regular and reserve components, ready to go. So very much it was to go over and familiarize me with what they had to do when they were there. Right. And also experience the whole situation as it was there, which was pretty hairy. Right. So you had initially said, before we go to your greatest challenge, you wanted to talk about your trip overseas. So what was your greatest challenge you had to overcome? 
I think at the very junior level, when I had been an officer cadet, I knocked heads a little bit with my platoon commander of the time. And so I had a sort of a one bad report that had gone there that I had to overcome. Right. So actually fighting my way into the militia and getting commissioned was a pretty serious challenge at the time. And happily, I found a couple of officers with a little bit of faith in me in the Royal Regiment. Without them, who knows whether I'd have even gotten in or not. But then I think I managed to justify their faith. And one of them was Brigadier Forbes West, who'd been 2IC on the Dieppe raid of the Royals. And so he was brigadier helping out at the time. And when I got promoted brigadier, I was able to call him and say, well, hope that works. So that was kind of memorable (laughs) with that. And through anybody's career as a commanding officer or a commander and so on, there are always incidents that are that are like a mountain you've got to climb at the time. But looking back 10, 20 years later, they're not really that much. I think getting through the period when the Army thought that reserve deputy commanders could do everything without ever realizing how much our civilian careers were taking out of us at the same time. And any reservist who've gone through that whole program, we could probably say just the entire stretch was the biggest challenge. So I'd say that. Well, sir, we've come to the end of the four questions. What are you working on now? What keeps you busy? In terms of the military, I was not in uniform for about 15 years and belonged to Fort York branch of the Legion and to several other organizations and kind of kept up to speed. But anyway, it was an honor to get asked to be an honorary of the Grain Simple Foresters. So we're getting ready for the 150th. We had Princess Anne two autumns ago visiting Barry for her very first time. She's the Colonel-in-Chief. Next year, as the 150th anniversary, there's a presentation of new colors in May of 2016. Base Borden celebrates their 100th at the same time, and there's always been a history of the Foresters and Base Borden, not only because of geography, but the Foresters in 1916 built Borden, the very first version of it. So there's a very, very close tie there. Several ceremonies to go through. And then I'm taking about 35 on a battlefield tour to Northwest Europe at the end of September of 2016. At the moment, I'm trying to raise uh, about $50,000 or more if I can do it to pay for everything that's got to happen next year. Right. I got your letter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you did. So that's occupying a whole lot of time. Right. Sir, I'd like to give you an opportunity to summarize your episode. Well, in summary, what I would regard, I started out with the complete intention of being a career soldier. That got a little derailed, and you can look back and say, well, if I had done this little thing different or that little thing different, everything would have unfolded differently, but that's water under the bridge. So I became what I never expected to, a reserve officer, and then uh, uh, had a civilian career at the same time. So I managed to, I think, prove to my old platoon commander that that he was wrong. <laughs> and that's so far water under the bridge ago, it doesn't, doesn't even really matter. But you can tell it's still somewhere in the back of my mind. <laughs> I was privileged to get as far as I did in it all the way through. Canada's a tough country to soldier for because everything between really not having a clearly defined foreign policy that defense could then follow to traditionally never quite having the right equipment and always being a little bit late and so on. But reservists, as I've found out, like all members of the Canadian Forces, we're kind of like lichens clinging to a rock in the Arctic. We refuse (laughs) to go away no matter who tries to kind of wipe us all out. 
I've become some kind of a senior statesman, I guess, along with the other senior statesmen trying to do what I can for the guys that are serving now. And then we're the ones who can maybe talk a little bit politically and talk to the civilian population and so on about the value of the reserves. That that the reserves always have seen themselves as a base for mobilization. The regular force always sees the reserves as individual augmentees, and that leads to a lot of friction and a lot of misunderstanding right. on both sides. But this battle's been going on for 200 years, and it, it'll continue <laughs> to. So that's how I'd survive it. In the end, it was maybe all meant to be this way. Right. Sir, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to be a guest on the show. I think the next time we're going to see each other will be again at the Christmas dinner for the Grain Simcoe Foresters, this time in Barrie, or perhaps at a parade practice between now and the month of May. Well, I hope we do, yeah. Once again, thank you very much, sir. Okay, Mike. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. End tag music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.